It's Wednesday, July 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Russian ransomware gang Our Evil has struck again, this time taking out thousands of businesses in what is called a supply chain attack. The main target was IT services company Kaseya, which is how the hackers were able to infiltrate other computer systems. Lily Hay Newman, senior writer at Wired, joins us for how Our Evil did it and the $70 million they want to restore service. Next, the Delta COVID-19 variant continues to cause worry among public health officials, especially in places like Wyoming, where only 32% of people are fully vaccinated and big events are taking place, like a 10-day rodeo set to start later this month. Julie Wernow, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how this variant is gaining ground among the unvaccinated. Finally, our body odor can reveal a lot of details about our health and also plays a role in attraction. Single people could actually even smell different than married people. In one study of smelly t-shirts, single people's BO smelled stronger than married men's BO, with a thought being that men in relationships and that have children have lower testosterone and therefore different body odor. William Park, senior journalist at BBC Future, joins us for how smell plays a role in how much we like each other. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In this situation, this attack involved targeting the software of a specific organization, but it's an organization that their software is used by multiple layers of organizations downstream from them. Joining us now is Lily Hay Newman, senior writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Lily. Hey, thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about uh, the latest ransomware attack. This happened right before the 4th of July weekend from a familiar group, Our Evil, this Russian ransomware gang. They're the ones that did the attack on the JBS meat processing plant. I think in that case, uh, they uh, got the company to fork over $11 million. In this attack, they're demanding $70 million, a ton of money. And, you know, they possibly were able to infect uh, hundreds, uh, maybe a couple thousand computers in all of this. So, Lily, tell us a little bit about what we know in this attack. Yeah, first of all, that's all exactly right, but I just want to make the distinction that it's not just a few thousand computers, it's potentially a few thousand organizations with all of their computers, you know, so right. that that number is kind of exponential from there. And I think the really significant thing in this situation, you know, you're talking about this group are evil that has in the past hit, for example, like you were saying, JBS, you know, the global meat supplier. But that's an example of a really big deal, very impactful, disruptive ransomware attack, but one on a single entity, right? It's it's targeted toward a single organization. In this situation, this attack involved targeting the software of a specific organization, but it's an organization that their software is used by multiple layers of organizations downstream from them. So in fact, when you target their software, you hit lots of other targets and it's this sort of chain reaction. And that's a very significant step in ransomware targeting, not completely unprecedented, but certainly a major and noteworthy addition. 
So what this uh, main company was, it's an IT services company called Kaseya. Tell us what they do and how the attack unfolded after they were able to infiltrate them. So Kaseya makes software. That, that's their main role. And then there are these other organizations called managed service providers who actually use that software for their clients. So it's a few different tiers of organizations that are involved. But basically, those managed service providers are using Kaseya's software to provide IT services, infrastructure, remote management to all sorts of other customers. Could be anyone, often small and medium-sized businesses, but any organization that doesn't feel like they have the expertise or the bandwidth or the you know knowledge to run those things themselves, in a lot of ways, it can be a good idea from a security perspective to outsource them. But in this situation, the Aryaville attackers were exploiting a flaw in this type of remote management software made by Kaseya called VSA, and they were exploiting that to seed the ransomware out. And so I I think it's still being investigated whether that exploitation occurred sort of in the the hive mind, uh, you know, of Kaseya, like up at the top, or whether it was happening in VSA software running at each of the managed service providers. But either way, the trickle-down effect is the same, that you end up hitting a lot of customers who are just not expecting it, had no idea that this could happen, just kind of out of the blue, this supply chain attack, like you said. And the timing of the attack was interesting, too, because Kaseya, for their part, knew they had already identified this underlying vulnerability. They were working on patches to fix all that. But the uh, our evil gang hit before they were able to implement that. The timing is interesting and unfortunate, you know, that Kaseya was already working on the patch and working with researchers who had disclosed the vulnerability to them. And then as they're, you know, scrambling to do that process, there's actually a real world exploitation of the vulnerability. Lily Hay Newman, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you. Currently, approximately 1,000 counties in the United States have vaccination coverage of less than 30%. These communities, primarily in the Southeast and Midwest, are our most vulnerable. Joining us now is Julie Wernow, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Happy to be here. The Delta variant of COVID-19 is still of concern for many public health officials, particularly in states where vaccination rates are low. Obviously, a lot of people aren't getting infected in the same rates as before, as as the height of the pandemic. But uh, hospital chains, hospitals are still worried about surges, especially when it comes to the Delta variant. You wrote a piece looking at Wyoming in particular. They have a very low vaccination rate and a couple of big events coming up pretty soon. So people are a little worried about what could happen. So, Julie, help us walk through what we're seeing. So Laramie County in Wyoming is sort of a perfect illustration of what we're seeing in pockets around the country. You've got an area where, you know, they've really struggled with their vaccination rate. 
sort of the wild west and people just aren't signing up anymore to get vaccinated. So they're at about a 32 percent vaccination rate, which really isn't high enough to kind of prevent the spread of things like the Delta variant in the community. And on top of that, you have the fact that they have completely gotten rid of any of the restrictions around mask wearing and, you know, anything that we saw earlier in the pandemic. And so people are sort of returning to normal life in the situation in which the Delta variant is showing up and you really only can see it visibly if you're at the hospital itself. On top of that, Fourth of July weekend and this huge rodeo that's coming to town kind of has public health officials and doctors, they are concerned about what's to come. Are we still seeing younger patients coming in more often with this? Is this where the bulk of infections is coming from? In some ways, right, the reason we're not seeing as many older patients is because uh, folks on the older end of the spectrum actually do have a much higher vaccination rate in general, right? And so if you are seeing people come through the doors, you're more likely to see these younger patients. There are pediatric patients that are showing up in addition to, you know, I, I spoke to a woman who's 28 years old and she had a very kind of classic case of what we're seeing with the Delta variant, which is that once she was exposed, it came on very quickly and then sort of spread within her household. So that is very different than in the past, that there's a much wider range of folks at the hospital in terms of age. You spoke to a, a number of people at, you know, these hospitals and different care centers and they said that they're fighting, obviously, this on two fronts, still people getting sick, but then a lot of misinformation. You know, a lot of people are sick of hearing about COVID. They don't want to hear about it anymore. They don't want to be told to be vaccinated. But the misinformation, a lot of times, is what keeping is keeping them from going out and getting those shots. You know, yes, we've had time for, you know, the virus and to kind of spread and mutate and change and grow. But at the same time, misinformation has also kind of been changing and growing and spreading. And so earlier on, you know, people who said, you know, they didn't maybe they showed up and they said that they felt like maybe, you know, there were tracking devices that were being inserted into them from the vaccine. Now you're hearing things like we don't even want to get tested for COVID because we're concerned that the disease is actually being spread through testing. So there's there's new kind of narratives that keep popping up that the doctors and healthcare workers say that they are, are sort of combating as they try to take care of this population. To be clear, we're not seeing numbers, as I mentioned earlier, the way we did at the height of the pandemic, but are hospital systems out there being overtaxed still? I know they're like uh, bracing for surges and all, but uh, are they being overtaxed right now? So far, you know, what's interesting when I'm what I'm hearing by and large is people saying that they've in one respect actually prepared better now for a situation in which they could become taxed. At the same time, these really are happening, like popping up in very particular sort of pockets. And so, you know, if one hospital system becomes overwhelmed, they are more likely to possibly be able to rely on another hospital system. So you're not seeing the kind of really overtaxed hospital systems quite yet in a widespread manner. Of course, you know, the reason that health officials are concerned is that if anyone remembers back to when this disease first showed up in the United States, it didn't take very long for something that looked sort of like a very small pocket or blip to immediately kind of take over the 
whole United States, right? And so they're always looking for these signs that something that's doubling every day or, you know, that kind of thing, it doesn't take that long for that to actually become really visible to people in the community. And so right now we're waiting to see if the vaccination rates we have been able to get to and the and the social distancing and mask wearing that is going on is enough to kind of prevent the kind of thing that we saw earlier on in the pandemic. Cheyenne Frontier Days is a huge rodeo that's coming to town pretty soon, as we uh, said at the beginning. It uh, starts on July 23rd. Garth Brooks is going to be playing there. It's going to be a huge 10-day event. So this worries these public health officials. There probably won't be a lot of mask wearing, but this is uh, these big things is what's concerning. That's right. I mean, they say that, that Cheyenne Frontier Days has sort of done a lot to try to position themselves in a way that people understand that they, what they really do want is for people to show up and be vaccinated and to wear masks if they're not vaccinated. But at a certain point, the public health officials in the area say, you know, at this point last year at Frontier Days, we canceled it because no one had a choice to get vaccinated. But this year, people do have a choice and we can't continue to stop the entire economy to protect people who aren't really interested in taking the vaccine or social distancing or wearing masks. Julie Wernow, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's first start with the staple compounds. Those are genetically related, so we cannot change them during the course of our life. And the variable compounds, um, they are related to nutrition. They are also um, related to fitness, for instance. Um, And the very variable compounds are, for instance, related to our emotions. Joining us now is William Park, senior journalist at BBC Future. Thanks for joining us, William. Uh, Great to join you. There's a new series co-produced by BBC Future and BBC Real. It's called Laws of Attraction, and it explores the roles that our senses play and how much we like each other. Uh, A couple of interesting things that you guys have been working on there, William. One of them is about smells and and people's scents and why certain people, you know, single people might smell different than people that are married or already coupled up. So, William, start us off. Tell us how smells, what kind of role it plays in our relationships. So smell plays a really interesting role in lots of aspects of our relationships, both romantic and just generally our social relationships. We give off a lot of information about ourselves in our BO. So, you know, when we talk about smell, I'm talking about our body odor, right? So the natural smell that we produce um, just from biological functions of our bodies, these aren't pheromones. They're sort of more subtle kind of sense that sometimes people kind of attribute to romantic attraction. Pheromones don't really exist in humans. There's only some very specific examples of human pheromones. Just talking about body odor. We reveal a lot of information about ourselves in our body odor. So we, we reveal genetic information. We reveal information about our diets, our health, our well-being, our emotional state. And all of this might have, in our evolutionary history, been important for forming social bonds and forming romantic relationships. It was a way of getting some information about what someone else's state of mind was like. So on a very um, sort of basic level, you mentioned the fact that single people and people in relationships smell slightly differently. That was based on a a particular study by um, a researcher based in Australia called Mem Mahmoud. And he looked at the body odor of single and married men. He gave sort of T-shirts that had been worn by these men to heterosexual women and asked them to rate them. And just like on a very basic level, 
the married men's t-shirts didn't smell as strongly as the single men's t-shirts. And it's thought that that might be, well, it's thought there might be a couple of things at play there. So, you know, maybe it's that it's more important for a single man to kind of communicate his fitness and his health and his well-being. So the body odor, which contains all that information, would be stronger. It might also be the case that as men get older, there's a number of other things that kind of factor in. So their testosterone levels decrease with age, men's testosterone levels. And that's one of the biggest kind of factors in the scent that we create, the scent men create. And so maybe the married men were just a bit older and actually also maybe the presence of kids in their lives. So if they're married and they have kids might sort of change the way their body odor works. So it might just be something to do with the sample, but it might also just be an interesting way that we kind of communicate our fitness to other people. So, so yeah, so the strength of BO, but there's also actually, and it sounds a bit weird to say this, the pleasantness that, um, that actually, you know, Although probably no BO smells really pleasant, some people's <laughs> right. BO does smell a bit more pleasant than yeah. others. They're, and they're, that might be because there are things in people's BO, genetic information about their fitness that we are sort of weirdly attracted to. So that was, that was kind of the premise of the article, just taking a look at what's in our BO and then, yeah, really sort of getting into why that information might be useful for romantic relationships. Yeah. And there's a number of these studies. A lot of them, oddly enough, have to do with women smelling men's T-shirts <laughs> after they've worn yeah. them. And that one that you were talking about, kind of, there's another study that basically looks at uh, something called human leukocyte antigen and these patterns of smells and People are, you know, when they pair somebody up with somebody that smells different to them, they say that, and a a different body odor immune profile, they say that uh, their kids could have a a better resistance to pathogens, all sorts of interesting things like that. Exactly. Yeah. So the the human leukocyte antigen or HLA is a kind of group of proteins that code for part of our immune system, as you said. And so it's kind of used as a bit of a shortcut for looking at what's in our immune system? What do I have protection against that someone else might or might not have protection against? So it's sort of used by scientists as a, a sort of shortcut for assessing that kind of information. And what, what, what's been found, and we don't really understand the exact mechanisms that drive this, but it seems to be the case that people who have dissimilar HLA profiles, so the idea is that I might be attracted to someone whose immune system protects them against stuff that I'm not protected against. And so that has advantages for your offspring because then you're kind of combining two sets of protection that cover a a sort of diverse number of um, pathogens and diseases. And so then in theory, your children would be kind of have a more complete immune system, a more complete kind of first aid kit. So there seems to be this link between the smell that we produce, whether we find it sort of oddly attractive, and then also how that sort of is representative of the diversity and genetics between you and a potential partner. But yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting thing you mentioned at the start there. These t-shirt studies have sort of sprung a whole kind of trend for t-shirt speed dating and things like that. And you can even get kind of mail order, BO, and, and the sort of dating sites that will <laughs> map people those. based on their body odor. And one of the research I, researchers that I spoke to, you know, she says that she has this kind of freezer filled with old smelly t-shirts from people from previous <laughs> studies and you know you can walk in it doesn't really smell of anything because it's zero degrees in there but obviously if it um, ever thawed it would be you know the worst smelling room in the university but yeah you know, i mean there's uh, sort of a bunch of kind of researchers that specialize in body odor research yeah. and they all use this kind of t-shirt methodology so well, um, getting people to wear t-shirts william park senior journalist at bbc future thank you very much for joining us thank you 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.